Clouds without rain, part one from Jude verses one to four. The the title is an interesting graphical metaphor that has stuck with me ever since I first read it in the letter of Jude. At present, of course, most of the clouds that we are, are seeing come across our land have thanks to God, have rain in them because the drought has finally broken in most parts of Australia. And that's uh, by the grace of God. A lot of our dams are at least half full or full to the brim and the land looks green and that is wonderful to see. But the last few years has been very different, hasn't it? The farmer would... uh, build up his hopes as he looked up in the morning at the skies and see the clouds in the distance. But would then be heartbroken as the clouds come and go without leaving a drop of rain on the thirsty soil. Clouds without rain might look pretty and at least have a function of protecting us from the sun on a very hot day. But that's about it. You should know that, you know, what, what it's like to build up your hopes and expectation and yet in the end you are left disappointed when nothing happens. Clouds without rain is a description of many a politician who promises much at election time and then after they're elected deliver very little. It is a description of how the owner of the vineyard in Isaiah felt when he was looking for a crop of good grapes, but he yielded only bad fruit. It describes how Jesus felt when seeing in the distance uh, a fig tree, a a green fig tree in, in leaf, in full leaf. He went to find out if it had any fruit. But as he got close... And search, there was nothing but leaves. So what did he do? He cursed it. It was all for show, but there was no substance, there was no fruit. It was not giving anything, apart from being pretty. Proverbs says, Like clouds and wind without rain is one who boasts of gifts never given. That's Proverbs 25.14. Now this morning we arrive at the last book in our series called Short Letters. It is also a short series. If you've been part of our church for any length of time, you know that our series tend to go on for a while, sometimes a couple of years. And you probably picked up on the fact that truth is a major theme in both of John's letters that we looked at. And this theme certainly continues here with Jude. Make no mistake, this is a hard and challenging letter, but it is also a timely one. And we need to remember that the New Testament was written in times of great cultural and religious pluralism or as another word for pluralism is diversity. 
The, the Greco-Roman world was in many ways like our own. It was a time when immorality was rife and the value of life was very cheap. People believed and followed many philosophical ideas and in many gods. You should know all about the, the myths and, and of Greek mythology. So when Jesus stood before Pilate and, and Pilate said, when Jesus started to talk about the truth, Pilate just said, well, what is truth? He was reflecting the spirit of the age. The many beliefs spawned by many ideas and philosophies and all these religious offshoots started spawning all, everywhere, competing for the hearts of the people. Because when there are so many choices, people start to believe in anything, following, and, and their lifestyle follows suit. And this is the atmosphere in which the early church paid such a high price to witness for Jesus. In the midst of conflict and persecution, much blood was shed. But they knew who was king, who was on the throne. As you look around, the battle for truth is as real today as it was 2,000 years ago. If you don't know that, you haven't been listening too well. We've just sung that the presence of God is here with us and, and we have to trust that his Holy Spirit is, 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 is knocking on our hearts. If you don't know the battle for truth, maybe you've been sitting on the truth for a little while because of why? Because you fear that anything you say might be used against you. On a Facebook post or a tweet or even at work, even when you're talking with your friends, so you just... Don't bring it up. No, no, don't go there. Israel Falau suddenly found out about the truth and what it's the cost when you have to share it. Now, Jude wrote the letter that bears his name in about 70 AD. That's about 70 years after Jesus was born. In, in Greek, his name is actually Judas. But translators have used the name Jude to avoid any association with, guess who, Judas Iscariot. And someone wrote in this regard that people will name their sons Peter or Paul and their dogs Nero or Caesar. But no one would even name their dog Judas. And it was, however, a very common name in, in, in Jewish in, amongst the Jewish people. So it's, it's sad that a name which actually Judas actually means praise would be tarnished forever because of one man's treachery. Now this letter only has 25 verses, but it is powerful as it sounds the alarm on the problem of teaching false ideas 
about God. And this letter is often overlooked because apart from the doxology, the doxology that comes right at the end, there aren't many well-known verses that we tend to recite and, and, and memorise in Sunday school. Also, we live in a time when the primary emphasis of the evangelical world, the evangelical church, has been the proclamation, and it is a truth, of the love of God and the benefits of knowing Him. This has often, however, been done at the expense of the truth and the judgment of God. So we memorise John 3.16, but we forget about quoting John 3.17 and John 3.18. But this little book reminds us that God has not hesitated, not in history, not since the garden, to pour out his judgment in the past and he will not hesitate to do so in the present and in the future. So let's get into our letter. First of all, verses 1 and 2, humble servant. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. To those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace and love be yours in abundance. Jude refers to himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Now in his Gospel, Matthew goes on to give us the names of Jesus' family. In Matthew 13, verses 55 and 56, this is what we read. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? That's the, that's the family. There's a few siblings there, isn't there? Of course, the Catholics would like to say that they were just you know, cousins, you know? They weren't, they weren't actual brothers or sisters. But it's very telling that Jude chooses to describe himself as a servant of Jesus Christ in this letter. He could have dropped his position, his special relationship in there, right? He could have called himself the younger brother of Jesus or the half-brother of the Son of God. Yet, maybe that's what I would have done. Yet he deliberately avoids identifying himself as such. Instead, Jude humbly declares himself to be a slave to Jesus. And while we probably find this description a little odd, it is not without precedent, of course. Similarly, the author of the, the book of of, of James, who was also the Lord's brother, made no attempt to identify himself, to name drop himself as the Lord's brother. 
choosing also to reveal himself as a servant, a doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ. This gives us another clear testimony of the deity of the Lord Jesus because if anyone would be in a position to refute the claim that Jesus was actually God, it would be his brothers, it would be his family, those who grew up with him, who were his half flesh and blood. They could have easily dismissed his claims. And and, and we know the episodes that they actually, the family came to, to get Jesus, to take him home because his family thought he had gone nuts. So although they did not believe in him until after the resurrection, these letters are another confirmation and another validation for us that the claims of the New Testament concerning Jesus are indeed valid. This is because his claims are supported even by those who would have every reason to deny them. And this letter is not addressed to a specific church or even a particular individual in a particular city. Instead, it is addressed to, and and I'll quote again, to those who have been called, loved, in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. He doesn't refer to their identity in terms of either their ethnicity, to the Romans, to the, the Greeks, or, 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 or to the city where they lived, like the Ephesians or Colossians. Rather, it speaks to the true identity of those believers in relation to, in relation to Christ. The great thing is that they have been called They've accepted the call. They are, they are, they know Him, Him, Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And they are loved, they are loved by the Heavenly Father and they are, they are kept, kept in the family, kept in the relationship in order that they might be His people forever. This is the family of God. I repeat it again. What are the words? Called. Loved and kept. Is that how you see yourself? Called, loved and kept, protected. In his hands, nobody can snatch you away from him. Loved, protected, called. It's a wonderful thing to remember. In a world that keeps telling us to find ourselves or to look within, this is, the, this is where we find our true identity. You just need to look within, brother. These words of Jude are, are I think, a, a very vital for the true believer, the son and the daughter of God. We are to ground our identity ob- objectively in Christ and what he says about us as his people. The fact that we are 
called, loved, and kept by Him must spur us to, to, to recognize His Lordship over our lives in every circumstance, in, in, in every aspect of our lives. He is Lord, just like His, his brothers did. And Christians ever since. True Christians ever since. It takes us to verse 3. Contending for the faith. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation that we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. And this is what happened. Apparently, Jude had originally intended to write about the joys and the benefits of our salvation. Uh, the, the phrase here, the salvation we share um, in the King James Version is our common salvation, uh, describes our salvation as something commonly received by all. Uh, our salvation is egalitarian. There is no room for a a caste system, the saints and the super saints in the family of God, right? We're all equally lost, equally in need of salvation, equally redeemed, equally saved, irrespective of colour, position, education, power. Our common salvation. And we are equally bound together in the body of Christ in this one, one salvation. Make no mistake, anything to do with our glorious salvation, as we know from the scriptures, anything we, we talk about that is worth writing about, it is worth meditating about, it is worth singing about, it is worth giving thanks to God for, for the rest of our lives, our common salvation. But as Jude began to write this letter, he sensed the Holy Spirit steering him in another direction to write on apostasy and, and, and the dangers posed to believers by false teachers. Perhaps if some of us were there, we would have said, come on Jude, come on brother, snap out of it, just, you know, just write something nice. We need something uplifting. Write something more positive, politically correct. Don't get too controversial. You're getting old, you know, just... You need people to remember you in a positive way. No. The Holy Spirit is in control and guided him in a different direction. And it was... Why was it? It was because of the ever-present dangers in his day and in our day because God knew that this letter would eventually get to us, the ever-present dangers of wrong thinking and misbeliefs. It's because of that 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 Jude wrote a, a different kind of letter than what he originally intended. And the message that he wrote under inspiration of the Holy Spirit are the words that God wanted for his people then and his people today. They are as important then as they are today, perhaps even more so today. This is why we always need to pay attention to what God is saying to us 
through his word. What does it mean to contend for the faith? The original Greek word here that is used means to intensely, intensely agonise in combat. In other words, we are to fight the good fight for the faith. And why do we have so many of these words such as fight and and race and continue, don't give up? Why, why, Why so many of these warnings in the New Testament about apostates and about those people who are straying away and going in a different direction? Can't we just live and let live and just let them go with their own ideas as we, do to, we tend to do today? It's okay, brother. He just has a different idea about God and Jesus and about the church. That's just his belief. Just live and let live. Let's be tolerant here. Don't, you know, don't think too much. He has a different idea about sexuality and gender Why? Why so many warnings? Is it because the early Christians were so naive or because the false teachers were so clever? Naive or clever? Church history actually tells us that it's both. There will always be naive believers who are easily deceived because they are not well grounded in the truth. They are not well grounded in the truth because they're not really all that interested in being grounded in the truth, you know, deeper roots in God's word. But also there will always be wicked men and women who Satan uses to take advantage, to to mislead God's people. They infiltrate the obvious places like our, our churches, our Bible colleges, our denominations. And there are more subtle places that we will also find it. Christian music, the stuff that you're listening to. the daily devotional that is supposed to encourage us to stay on track in our Christian walk. Is that really true? What this preacher is saying on, on, on YouTube or whatever, is, is, it, is it really true? Well, how would you know unless you are grounded in the truth? And it is because of these dangers that the, the Bible keeps reminding us of our calling to keep our eyes peeled, lest we be led astray. Like Daniel and his friends, we do find ourselves in Babylon. We find ourselves in a strange place. 
And there are times, like Daniel and his friends, that we need to rise up and contend for the faith. Truth is worth fighting for and something so evil that they must be opposed, even at the risk of losing friends. We simply cannot ignore God's command because the consequences are eternal. For example, let me give you just one example. I could name so many others. Whenever we start discussing the issue of abortion, oh, there he is again. In the abortion issue, many Christians get sucked into into this without really thinking about the implications of the the common ideas there is there. You know, it's, it's the... Well, what if a, a baby, what if someone is conceived in rape? And that's probably one or two percent of all the incidences like that, but it does happen. And so they use that in order to have a blanket um, ethic for the rest of the abortion issue. So let me get this straight, right? Let me get just get your thinking caps on. Right? It's okay for an innocent baby conceived in rape to be murdered in the womb but we dare not hang the rapers from the gallows because capital punishment is seen as barbaric. Where's the logic in that? Please tell me because I'm trying to understand here. What's good for the goose is good for the gander, isn't it? A life is a life. In the womb or outside the womb. See, don't get sucked into by this world. Don't. Think. Open your eyes. Follow God's truth. And I am ashamed of some of the stuff that he's been taught. Even in our colleges. Even in our Bible colleges. I think I've just broken one of my code of conduct issues, by the way. A red flag there. It's fine. I'm not here to please people, I'm telling you. Here comes the tricky part. We must contend for the faith without being contentious. And something contending for the faith means to whack people over the head with the Bible. I hope you don't do this. This is not what Jude has in mind. Remember Paul's warning to, to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 2:24 to 25. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition. Remember that. And, and also notice how this truth, this truth is, it says here, entrusted to God's holy people. Uh, the word has the idea of making a deposited into somebody's account. Uh, our faith is not something 
fabricated by a person or a, or a collection of individuals. It is divinely inspired and then delivered and trusted to us because it is so precious. And this body of truth has come to us after being delivered through great price by authoritative persons, the gospel writers, under inspiration from the Holy Spirit and the apostles. In in effect, God said to this generation and every generation since, I'm going to give you my truth. Can I trust you to take care of it and pass it on to the next generation? This is why the Apostle Paul uses this expression a couple of times because he wasn't one of the first original disciples, but he was an apostle. This is what Paul said, what I have received... I also pass on to you. It's the, it's the football, isn't it? Pass it along. Don't be a hog. And this is not a case of Chinese whispers that by the time it gets from one person to the next, it's, it's a different message. We are not permitted to add to it, subtract from it, reinterpret it, uh, we cannot simply choose to speak on things we like and ignore the bits that we don't like because it might be offensive. If this, folks, if this was the case, I wouldn't be preaching to you from Jude. I'd just say, no, I need to keep my people happy. I want them to like me. You know how insecure I am. I wouldn't be preaching on this stuff. Because, you see, God is not interested in easy listening for itchy ears. He is interested in nurturing hungry hearts through his Holy Spirit to build them up, strengthen them. Fourthly, the danger lurking. Verse 4. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Anytime you go into battle, you need a clear understanding of who your adversaries are. He tells us four things about these apostates. Uh, First of all, they they secretly slip in and and do their evil work. It's not like they're wearing fluorescent shirts Here I am, a false teacher. Come on, you want me as your pastor. I know that. No, they're in camo gear. Slip in. 
Secondly, they do not know God. They do not know God. Um, Hopefully nobody in this church says they don't know God. Hopefully we can all say we know God because he first knew us. Thirdly, they deny that Jesus Christ is the sovereign Lord. Um, Yeah. Sovereign means that he rules over everything, not just a little bit of your life. All things. And fourthly, they use their religion uh, as an excuse for immorality. So what was happening is that they they were changing the grace of God into a license to live an immoral, sexually degraded life. Doesn't the Bible, but but hang on, Paul. I mean, doesn't the Bible say love covers a multitude of sins? Love. For them, however, the, the grace of God is so broad that God forgives anything you do. The more you sin the more grace. So just have fun. Uh, this idea is, is widely sh- shared in, in our day-to-day, unfortunately. If you love someone, as long as you are genuine, it doesn't make any difference what you get up to. In the end, love justifies adultery, fornication, homosexuality, Anything. The events of this week in the American election, I'm, I'm firmly of the belief that this is a result of God's judgment on the land of the free and home of the brave. And it's not just a judgment on, on America, I think because of the influence of the United States throughout the world and its power I think it's a judgment on the world Billy Graham said the late Billy Graham said if God doesn't judge America he'll have to apologise to Sodom and Gomorrah around one million Abortions every year. Every year. And uh, don't feel so smug. Australia is on par or per capita. It's actually beyond that. Per capita. The Bible plainly says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Proverbs 14.34 Uh, And the paraphrase of that verse would be, living by God's standards makes a nation great. But disgrace comes to those who ignore God's truth. Folks, I hope that the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you. And in the following weeks, we will be looking at the following verses. But in the light of God's word, let us not be discouraged. 
Let no heart be frightened as we witness the chaos in the world events. We know how the story ends. God calls us to contend for the faith, to stand for the truth, to pray for each other, encourage one another, spur each other on, to walk in obedience and then share the truth in the love of Christ with those who need to hear it. Even with those who don't want to believe, we need to share this wonderful truth from Jesus Christ. May God's love be with us. Amen.